Well, good evening everyone. Good to see you, Philippians. And, um, it's a wonderful book to look at. It's the most personal of Paul's epistles that aren't addressed to individuals like Timothy and Titus. Uh, the, the first person singular occurs about a hundred times in the letter. And one of the major themes is joy. As you know, 14 times you get joy or rejoice or be glad <laughs> in, in the letter, it's wonderful and the gospel is another theme in, in the letter as well so it's very good to look at it um, the gospel occurs nine times and really it's basically a lovely thank you note for gifts that the Philippian believers had sent to him and so it's the best thank you note you could ever read and it's just absolutely wonderful. I would like to read a few verses, please, at the start of the letter, just to, to catch the flavour of Philippians. Um, Philippians 1.1 Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in change or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Isn't that a lovely opening? Um, I'm going to give a few introductory comments, but you wouldn't do in a sermon, right? Okay. Introducing Paul. In Paul's own person, Roman, Greek, and Jew met. He was like most of us, a, a glorious amalgam of influences in his past. Um, at that time, you know, the Roman Empire straddled the whole Mediterranean world, went as far east or right over into Syria, well over, and right up into the, the Danube and Germany, and even up, up to Scotland for a wee while till we chased them away. Um, <laughs> so the Roman Empire was all-powerful, and Paul's father was a Roman citizen. And that carried a lot of privilege. That was like an international passport in those days, to be a Roman citizen. You could become a Roman citizen in three different ways. You could become a Roman citizen by inheriting citizenship from your father. Or you could become a Roman citizen uh, by buying citizenship. You paid a big sum of money to buy citizenship and the third way was to have it granted to you by the Roman Empire in exchange for services rendered and Professor F.F. F. Bruce thinks that Paul's father 
I was granted Roman citizenship um, for making tents for the Roman army. Paul was a tent maker, you know that. That was his his, his trade. He was a tent maker. And um, Professor F.F. F. Bruce's idea is a very good idea. Uh, Roman. Um, <clears throat> and then Greek. It was brought up in a, in a city called Tarsus. And uh, in fact, he calls Tarsus no mean city. You remember? It's like Glasgow, you know. I'm a citizen of no mean city. And he really meant, I'm a citizen of a terrific city. Tarsus. And how these Greek cities developed was because of the Greek concept of the city-state. Um, was, Greece was full of cities with independent government. Um, and there was a a famous king in Greece called Philip of Macedon. And Philip of Macedon had a clever boy, a son of his called Alexander, who became Alexander the Great. And when he was a, a youngster, Philip employed the famous philosopher Aristotle as his tutor. So he was, he was educated in the Greek language, meaning everybody in those days it had at least a smattering of Greek. It was like English in the world today. Just as English is known throughout the civilized world today, Greek was known throughout the civilized world then. And they've discovered, some folk used to think, you know how Paul talks about the language of angels in First Corinthians 13, or, uh, I speak with the tongues of angels. Well, some folk think the tongues of angels um, <clears throat> were the language of the Greek New Testament but what they discovered was it was Koine Greek it was common Greek the Greek of the New Testament is the type of Greek that the ordinary folk uh, talked there's classical Greeks different I've, I've taught uh, pupils students they call them now uh, Greek but it's classical Greek it's far more complex than Koine Greek common Greek so far from being the language of angels it was a language of the ordinary people and so he was brought up uh, in a Greek situation now Alexander the Great became king when he was 20 and uh, he died when he was 33 and he'd conquered the whole of the then known world he got as far as India got to the plains of the Punjab the legend was when he got to the plains of the Punjab he cried because there were no more worlds to conquer um, and he's rather like in my historical thinking he's rather like Napoleon he had tremendous military success um, he organised the phalanx uh, for battle uh, arrangement he was a strategist in war but his achievements in peace like Napoleon's code the Napoleonic code, code in France um, his, his exploits in peace far eclipsed his warring exploits and here's what he did everywhere he went he got people veterans and wounded soldiers to stay behind in the towns and cities and to marry the local women and to set up centres of Greek culture, which included baths for swimming, bathing and lying about. Secondly, libraries, so that folk could advance their learning. Universities, and fun was a great thing. 
So you had the, as well as all that, you had a stadium where the spectators could go and watch foot racing, or you had a hippodrome uh, where they went for the horse racing. Hippo is the Greek word for horse. You know, hippopotamus is the horse of the river. Uh, a hippo was, a hippodrome was a horse place for racing horses. And uh, they also had, uh, uh, as well as all that, theatres for them to go and watch the Greek tragedies being played out and the choirs singing and all that. So this was the, the, the atmosphere he was brought up in in Tarsus. You still with me? Okay, here's the third thing. Roman, Greek and Jew. Uh, Philippians gives us details about his family background that no other letter does. He, was, he said a Hebrew of the Hebrews, which means... Uh, the Hebrew-speaking son of Hebrew parents, probably. Um, he wasn't a proselyte. He wasn't somebody that came in late to Judaism by conversion. He didn't convert to Judaism. He was born in a Jewish family. And that means, for, as Jude, you probably know, Judaism is a way of life rather than a, a dogma. And so he was brought up as a Jewish boy from childhood being brought up in the synagogue which was the centre of education after the exile when the temple had been destroyed the Jews developed synagogues as local places of worship uh, out with Israel and so he was brought up in the synagogue and he was trained in the law um, and later on he became a Pharisee the Jews had a wonderful system very clever boys were clean creamed off and sent to Jerusalem and handed over to the top rabbis like Rabbi Gamaliel to learn all about um, the Old Testament in particular the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah and uh, these folks, some of them became Pharisees Paul became a Pharisee a Pharisee, there probably scholars reckon about 600 Pharisees in Israel in the time of the Lord Jesus and they were well, how I think of them, please, please excuse me if, if I insult you, but I think they were a bit more, a bit like the Gideons. A Bible study group that met for lunch, letting your meals were a lot of the, the, the and, they, and they exchanged what they learned that week. And they not only had to learn the content of the, the Torah, the first five books, but also what every rabbi down the centuries had ever said about these five books. So they had encyclopedic information uh, about commentary on the first five books of the Bible and uh, they met and exchanged all that, that's why Jesus says remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount said they were amazed at his teaching for he taught as one who had authority they quoted the authorities but Jesus had authority and so he was brought up as a Jew and they grew to hate the followers of the way who followed the carpenter of Nazareth, Jesus. A whole lot of reasons why the Jews were not at all keen on the person of Jesus. He was too young to be a senior figure in religious learning. He'd never been to Jerusalem. He had a 
<coughs> like the equivalent of a Scottish accent he had a Galilean accent from the north of the country was Galilee he came from and he had an, a Galilean accent remember how Peter was denying him and he had the same accent as Jesus um, so that's the background and then one day Acts 9 uh, it tells us <coughs> that he was on the Damascus road on a hunt to persecute Christians and he was confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ and his whole life was turned topsy-turvy and this brilliant young Pharisee <coughs> went in he went away for three years and put all his ideas into the melting pot and uh, he was changed forever and became the apostle to the Gentiles uh, introducing Philippi I think he, the scholars think he probably visited Philippi initially about the year AD 50 and the letter that we have was probably written around about AD 60 when he was a prisoner at his last imprisonment in Rome and he wrote Philippians probably from Rome we'll say more about that Philippi was in the northeast of Greece it was near the coastal town of Neapolis and you can read all about it in Acts chapter 16 it's a lovely story of how God worked in Philippi what had happened was in Acts 16 it tells us one night Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia right? some folk think the man from Macedonia was Dr. Luke who wrote the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke because there was a medical school near there and there are passages um, called the we passages from then on in Acts as if it was uh, Luke that was writing personally from then on so he had this vision of a man of Macedonia that's Greece calling on him to come over and help them and he was sort of diverted from any other paths and sent to Macedonia and the first place he went was Philippi roughly you know it was really Philippi was the main story in Acts 16 now <coughs> Philippi um it got its name from Philip of Macedon, uh, Alexander the Great's father. There were springs or fountains near Philip, this place, that <coughs> were named after Philip. And there were several of them, so they're plural. So the name Philippi is a plural name connected with the fountains. Double springs named after Philip of Macedon. And uh, Philippi had. Uh, Roman colony status it was a scene of a great battle between Antony Octavian and Brutus and Cassius after the death of Julius Caesar they, they fought for supremacy in the land and it was a famous place um, there, was, there were very rich silver mines near Philippi and so it was a well off place as uh, <clears throat> To, to add to that and they didn't have what you called a minyan the Jews had a term called a minyan a minyan means enough people to form a synagogue how many people do you need to form a synagogue the, the Jewish law said ten heads of households ten fathers uh, could form a synagogue but there weren't enough to form a synagogue in Philippi when Paul landed there by the river there was a ladies prayer meeting 
going on. And the spread of the gospel to Europe came through the ladies who met by the river to pray. And Paul joined them. And uh, the gospel spread throughout uh, every strata of society represented in Acts 16. There was a demon-possessed girl with a, a kind of evil spirit of ventriloquism she was totally dominated by her her masters and um, Paul was able to through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, get her clear of that and she was if you like the lowest of the low and then also in Acts 16 you've got a civil servant you've got the, the jailer who got converted in his family in Acts 16 and he would be probably a, a veteran who was settled there and put in charge of the jail. So he's like a, a senior civil servant <laughs> in charge of the jail. And then at the top of the tree, there's a lady called Lydia, a seller of purple, a merchandiser. She, she sold purple dyed garments. And she would be very well off, probably. So it's as if the gospel in Acts 16, it was to show how the gospel spread throughout society, even in a place like Philippi. What else can we say? Well, where was Paul when he wrote Philippians? And there are four possibilities. He had four imprisonments. He's writing from the jail. Is I am in chains he's talking about being in chains in verse 7 of chapter 1 the four imprisonments were Philippi well, he wasn't there for long God blew up the place and he got out he was in Jerusalem in prison he was in Caesarea in prison and he was in Rome in prison there are seven journeys you can trace from the text of Philippians um, Caesarea was probably too low-key and out in the coast, down at, uh, there were two Caesareas in in, uh, the story, Caesarea Philippi um, in Israel up at the north near the Golan Heights, and Caesarea Maritima down at the coast, well it's out of the action down at the coast, unlikely it was Caesarea, and uh, Rome, well the the difficulty of Rome is, the distance between Rome and Philippi is 1,200 miles. Uh, and the question is, that was about 60 days journey. The question, how did Paul manage to visit Philippi from Rome? Or write to Philippi from Rome? But uh, that's the more difficult. A simple rule of interpretation quite often is take the most difficult answer. Because the chances are the easier answer is worked up to, to be smooth with the situation. The awkward answer is the one to prefer. That's a, a, one of the parameters of interpretation of the Bible. So we think, I think, um, few scholars also argue for uh, Caesarea quite strongly, but I, I would say if, uh, Rome is the best possibility. Um, when was it written? Well, we think probably towards the end of his two years in jail in Rome, uh, around about AD 60. So that's, that's all I have to say by way of introduction. And what I'm going to do now is hand out a, an outline. You can all have an outline. 
think there's enough there for us all. There's about 20 leaflets there. You know, divide them up and <coughs> hand them back and we'll get them out quicker. Um, <laughs> how I would do a Bible book is, first of all, I like to see the overall picture of a book and then go into the bits and pieces. Okay, so we're going to look at Philippi um, and the letter to the Philippians and go through the text. Have your Bible open and we'll go through the text together and get an analysis of the text as we go through. Now that's my outline. Um, I'm not promising this, but I do hope that I'll go up the loft this week. <laughs> and I think I've got enough copies to give you all a free copy of the book uh, next week. So there's a, there's a wee bit of encouragement to come back. <laughs> there it is, you'll get that free next week. It was six ninety nine, I think, when it was first came out. But uh, <laughs> you'll get it free if you come back next week. And this is my outline. Um, so there's hello and thanks, the first 11 verses is saying hello. He's following the pattern of old of letters in the first century. You always had your name and greetings at the start, and then you had the, the contents. And Paul's letters, probably was a, the first part of the letter would be theological, spiritual content. And then the second bit, practical content. And then cheerio and tell send my greetings to so and so and so and so at that fellowship with amazing knowledge of the churches he had visited especially Rome, good life um, he knew an awful lot about the Roman church, never having been there anyway um, hello and thanks now then, the cause of Christ verses 12 to 30 of chapter 1 I want you to know brothers that you know He's talking about it was known in restriction. Uh, the cause of Christ known in restriction. Um, I'm imprisoned. I'm in jail. I'm in chains. And yet, the gospel, the cause of Christ has come to be known. Even among the palace guard. Which indicates, to some extent, some folk think Rome because... The, the palace guard, there was a, a crack group of troops, real commando types had been through it all, and they were set to guard the emperor. They were the emperor's crack force of defence, the Praetorian Guard, and he talks about the palace guard here, so folk, so folk think it's Rome, although we think in some of the other uh, significant cities there were the equivalent of the Praetorian Guard. Uh, some scholars think. Anyway, um, there was no one in restriction. He was a prisoner. It was preached in contention. Well, you can stand to reason. If the preacher's in, in the jail, <laughs> what are folk going to say? What kind of preacher's that? He's in the jail, you know. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of argument about him, discussion and debate as to whether he's a fraud, a charlatan, or whether he's the, the real thing. Uh, it was preached in contention and it was embodied in expectation because he says for me to live is Christ and to die is advantage or gain and he goes on to talk about uh, embodied in expectation whatever happens he says whether by life or death 
I'm going to continue where I am and I'm going to keep serving God and I want to be with you again and the joy of the Lord Jesus will overflow in account of me. Okay? And then we've got the condescension of Christ in chapter 2, verses 1 to 30. There's the call to humility in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. In Colossians, Paul replies to a heresy, to a false teaching. But in Philippians, he replies to bad relationships within the fellowship. There were two ladies in particular, Eudius and Syntyche. Don't live like that. Don't live with all this dissension. And he sets out what I call a mindset. Let this mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you get a wonderful passage in verses 6 to 11 of chapter 2. Some folk think it's an early Christian hymn. It may well be an early Christian hymn. It may well be an early Christian hymn written by Paul. He was perfectly capable of writing a hymn. I mean, when you look at First Corinthians 13, what a beautiful structure it has, and what the, the wonderful poetic language of it. You know, I'm a, I'm a, a clanging cymbals, just noise, you know. And you get lovely pictures at the end of the First Corinthians. He's perfectly capable of writing a hymn. Or else he's just using what was known as an early Christian hymn to show them the mindset that was in Christ Jesus as the pattern for their living as a church. So you've got the call to humility and the criterion of humility is the Lord Jesus, verses 5 to 11. And then the second part of chapter 2, you've got the continuance of humility in chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. It says, therefore, you know, whenever you see therefore, ask wherefore the therefore. In the light of all this, here's how you should be living. Um, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling um, and this wonderful gospel that they've to live out it was actually embodied and personified in two of Paul's companions Timothy and Epaphroditus and he talks about Timothy everyone else looks for their own interests but Timothy has proved himself he's served with me as a son with a father in the work of the gospel verse 22 and then there's Epaphroditus he was very ill he was sent with the gifts from Philippi but he was very ill he was almost dead but he recovered and he embodies the whole spirit of Christian service so that's the first two chapters and I'm going to stop at that on the, the outline and you can keep the, the, the outline and we'll go into chapters 3 and 4 later now here's what I want to do with you I want to go through uh, chapter 1 and just talk, pick out stuff from chapter 1 uh, first of all <clears throat> verse 1 we'll look at chapter 1 he says Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus and there's two things about that. First of all, Paul's a team player. He's not a loner. When you read the text, you read about Timothy, you read about Epaphroditus, when you read Acts, you read about Silas, you read about Barnabas, you know, you read about all these folk, Titus, um, all, these, all these folk that were in the team, working together with him. Um, he's a team player, Paul and Timothy. And then he uses the word servants. Um, the word for a servant in Greek 
is doulos. Um, the Hebrew equivalent is eved in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, I, th- I, I rather think that we have Scottish connections with doulos because we used to have a word when I was young. You would say about somebody, I was just a dooley. Scotland was familiar with the, with the Greek and the Hebrew from the time of John Knox. There's a wonderful story later on about a man that walked into a bookshop. He was a ploughman and he'd walked, I think, 18 miles to the bookshop in St Andrews and he asked for a Greek New Testament. Uh, his name was Brown, John Brown. And there happened to be a professor of Greek in the bookshop at the time and he said, if you can read any Greek, he said, I'll give you, I'll buy that for you. And the boy rubbed his hands together, picked up the Greek New Testament and read it to the professor. And away he went, 18 miles home, a free Greek New Testament. <laughs> that was Scotland. We were the most educated nation in Europe. We were centuries ahead. We're talking about being 20th in the world in terms of riches. We were very rich in education for centuries because John Knox tried to have everybody able to read in every parish so we could read the Bible in English. And never mind Greek. So, and uh, in Rome, when you said doulos, there would be a mental picture. The slave market. Because they bought and sold slaves. They reckoned a third to a quarter of the Roman Empire were slaves in the time of Paul. Um, At one stage the Roman Senate Senate had a debate whether or not to issue slaves with uniforms. And they decided not to because they would realise how numerous they were and rise up and revolt like Spartacus did. You know? So they didn't issue the slaves with uniforms. So it's it's a title of abject misery in the New Testament because the slave was a chattel of his master the absolute I mean he could just call you any hour of the day or night to do anything the word in the Old Testament uh, there's two wonderful New Testament scholars, Joachim Jeremias uh, uh, and another guy called uh, Eichrott they wrote a book on the meaning of the word servant in the Old Testament and they studied all the texts and they came up with a wonderful conclusion a servant, an eved is someone who belongs to someone else (laughs) but in the Old Testament there's an overtone to it that has dignity as well as slavery and Moses is called my servant Moses and Messiah is the servant of the Lord, the Ever Yahweh, in the prophecy of Isaiah. So it, there are overtones of dignity with it when he says, servants, slaves of Christ Jesus. And then he uses another word in the second verse, Haggai. Haggai are the saints, the holy ones. And you never get a saint in the New Testament. Do you know that's always plural? It's always the saints. Never Saint Matthew, Saint John, and all that stuff. It's, we're always saints. I am one of the saints, you know. You're one of the saints. If you love the Lord Jesus, you're one of the saints, like Paul and Timothy were. Okay. And he says to you, he says to them, verse two, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and he uses grace as charis 
Some children are called Caris nowadays, aren't they? in and Irony. Irony. It's, lo- it's a long evil A. The long evil is Eta. Um, irony. Grace and Peace. Now, Grace is... Well, the, the, the old mnemonic of it is God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-E-C-E. Um, grace is getting what you don't deserve. And mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And that's how God has treated us in the Gospel. Grace is a wonderful word. In the Old Testament, <coughs> there's a word, uh, chesed, which is the cement of the covenant, Professor Smith says. And it's, it's a sign of God's immense continuing goodness to us, even when we are unfaithful. Um, even when we're disloyal, he still loves us. He's a wonderful God. And somebody has said that grace is uh, the Greek blessing. And the other blessing is peace. Irony. In Hebrew, that's shalom. Shalom is peace. And it can mean wholeness, completeness, entirety, perfection, or a sense of well-being, you know. And these are wonderful words that we can experience the grace of God and enjoy his peace, peace through the blood of his cross. So then he goes into the next bit and he talks about his prayers for them, thanks them for their partnership in the gospel, and he knows that this work is going to continue. Um, if you want my headings for it, there's a, a consistent pattern. Everything good in the world comes from God. Everything good comes from God. Uh, there's a consistent, a consistent pattern, and there's a careful persistence. The God who starts the work in us sees it through. He's not like the man Jesus spoke about. Remember the man who began to build a tower, and he gave up. And they called him a fool because he began and was not able to finish. God doesn't like that. When God starts a work in our lives, he continues it. The Holy Spirit makes us equal to growing up in Christ. Um, So, and the third thing I would say is, um, there's a confident promise. He will do it, he will do it. There's no doubt about it, you know. And so he he tells the Philippians here, you know, this this is absolutely great that God's going to keep you and he talks about his prayer for them and he gives a beautiful prayer in verse 9 and this is my prayer what does he pray for? well he prays for multiplied love which is lovely that your love will multiply it will be exponential love expanded perception heightened discernment a purified character and a righteous personality imagine praying all these things for folk eh, somewhere else in a church which is absolutely lovely that prayer and then the passage that goes on from verse 12 talks about him being in chains for Christ and some folk were envious of him and others 
might think he got what he deserved or something like that. There was a whole lot of contention about him, and that passage talks about the turbulence around him. And later on, he's going to use the word joy, isn't he? He uses the word joy 14 times, and he's able to face all that. Because joy is not just happiness. Happiness can be a temporary thing, an evanescent thing, uh, a spasmodic thing. But joy, the joy that God gives us, is a deep-seated contentment, which is independent of circumstance. You know, there's a famous tin miner in Cornwall called Billy Bray, a wild man, a wild drunkard, who got converted. And he didn't care what they did to him. He said, if you put me in a barrel, I'll shout the gospel through the bung. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what happened to Billy Bray, they could never deprive him of his Christian joy. And Paul was like that. And he's, he's very glad that this is, whatever happens... Because of my change, some brothers have been encouraged to speak the, the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Some preach out of envy and lively, others of goodwill, and so on. The important thing that is, in, is that in every way Christ is preached. You know, when Billy Graham was here in 1955, people were talking about the gospel in the, on the tram car. Uh, in the street and in the shops and all over the place but it was a talking point and Paul says I don't really mind being a talking point as long as the gospel's at the heart of the talking that's the important thing and people are able to make decisions in relation to the gospel that's the important thing which is just wonderful isn't it so there he is and he gets to this wonderful saying in, in verse 21 for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain the Greek text says eh, to me that to live Christ there's no verb to be in the original text for to me that to live Christ and that to die gain that's what the text says in the Greek um, and it's blunt and very direct in other words he says you scratch me anywhere and you'll find Christ <laughs> in any aspect of my living Christ at the centre of it and then well he says it's, it's, uh, it's doubly profitable even dying is doubly profitable he says uh, and the to die gain so his boundaries are Christ the boundaries of this man's life are Christ and even death is a gain, it's an advantage Oh, well, Paul says when I die, it's not going to be a loss it's going to be a gain, an advantage how can that be? well, first of all, he's going to see Christ which is far better that's the first thing, it'll be an advantage to him, and in chapter 3 we'll see, he says, he's going to transform my lowly body, it's going to be like unto his glorious body, and I'll be equipped for praise for all eternity in heaven, hallelujah! And, <laughs> and, and the other thing is, um, when I die, they'll talk about the gospel even more. That's the doubly profitable bit. You know, uh, Tertullian was an North African lawyer 
And there was a very strong church in North Africa. The Muslims wiped it out. But Tertullian was one of the brilliant early church fathers. He was a, a wonderful, gifted man. He was a trained lawyer. And he said, the seed, what is it? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Paul said, if I die, my blood will be like seed. And other folk will come to faith in Christ. Wonderful stuff. Chapter 1. I think I better move on. Um, suffering's part of the package did you notice in passing at the end of chapter 1 he says it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him and if that was ever true it's true tonight in our world isn't it we children being beheaded and refusing to renounce Christ it's terrible what's going on and he says, suffering's part of the package. And then he goes into chapter 2. And he talks about the encouragement of being united with Christ. Um, the comfort of his love, the fellowship of his spirit. It's as if he's piling up all the advantages you've got. If any, tenderness and compassion. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Agree together. Agree together. And if you if there's four in the church you don't like, you ever prayed for them? It's very difficult to speak against somebody if you've prayed for them. And we say prayer changes things, but prayer also changes people. And it changes the person who prays as well as the person they're praying for. That's God's a double-edged weapon prayer. And he says, uh, be like-minded. Be like-minded, he says, in the, the opening of chapter 2. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Somebody told me, somebody came to visit him a few weeks ago, and all he talked about all the time he was in was himself. And these folk were really needing help. And they weren't interested, he wasn't interested in them. He was only interested in telling them what a great guy he was. He says, don't, get so don't be totally taken up with your own interests. Don't be self-interested in your living. But consider the needs of others. You know, I've got a fellow I spoke to this morning. And his wife, a very clever lady, two years ago she took Parkinson's and dementia developed in her life and she's about she's not six stones in weight now and she's all shriveled up she's all she's nothing like the lady we knew two years ago and this guy visits his, visits his wife every day and every time I see it the guy I think I pray for him and we've got in prayed with his wife as well and you just think you know we get so Busy, what I say, busy in your own kale yard that you, you don't think about other people's kale yard. Um, and so he says, be like minded. He says, uh, oh, verse, verse 5, your attitude, I like mindset for that. It's a modern, a modern phrase that I like. Mindset. This should be your settled attitude. Your mindset 
should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now the imitation of Christ seems to be a wonderful thing, but in actual fact, none of us really can imitate Christ to the nth degree. The Holy Spirit makes us the sons of God, and none of us are perfect. We might be perfect in our heart allegiance to God, but in our daily living, none of us is perfect. And so when he says, your mindset, he's not saying you have to be utterly perfect or else you have no use as a Christian. Some folk get written off as Christians. <coughs> Don't be like that. He says, have this mindset that as far as you are able, by the help of the Holy Spirit, you are going to be in the pattern of Christ's life and death and so he talks about he's got this passage verses 6 to 11 a wonderful Christian hymn elsewhere in Colossians 1.15 there's a wonderful passage about the Lord Jesus but there's also it's parallel in Philippians is magic as well it's a wonderful passage about the Lord Jesus he says who being in very nature God in other words, that was his essential character, being in his very nature, God. He did not consider equality with God, what does it say in the NIV? Something to be grasped. Harpagmos. It means to snatch at something, like a burglar snatches the booty, you know, from people's house, steals their stuff. There's no question of stealing here. The Lord Jesus didn't have to steal equality with God. Nor the other sense of that word is to steal it or to hug it, to, to hold it tight, you know. He didn't snatch it like a burglar snatches booty. And he didn't hug it to himself like a selfish person does. And they say, this is mine and nobody else is getting it, you know. What did he do? He emptied himself. Echinosin is a Greek. He emptied himself. The King James says, made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. And that, that really, it takes a lot of thought. He emptied himself. He will never be able to, to, to figure this out. What did he empty himself of? Well, obviously, he emptied himself out of the worship of the angels. As far as he was physically concerned in heaven, he was worshipped by the angels. He emptied himself of his omnipresence because he, he voluntarily restricted himself to being a peasant teacher of Galilee. Right? He also emptied himself of being uncontaminated by sin in terms of contact with it because heaven's a place of utter purity he emptied himself to the extent that he had willingly to face temptation so when we look at Jesus he's not like Santa Claus he's not wearing a suit and that's it it's not a, he doesn't, he's not adopting a role like an actor does he's actually a genuine human being he's thirsty, he's hungry, he's angry there's a whole lot about him that indicates that he'd given up some of his, if you like, his uh, heavenly powers to restrict himself to earth there's a wonderful passage in the 
Macintosh. H.R. Macintosh said that the Lord, the Lord Jesus, had a, he was perfectly sensitive in a way that we are not. Our sensitivities are blunted and damaged through sin, but in the case of the Lord Jesus, his sensitivities as a perfect human being were much more heightened than ours. That's why he's in a crowd and a woman touches his garment and says, who touched me? And the disciple, oh come on, look in the big crowd, they're all jostling and rubbing shoulders with you. And Jesus knew that was the touch of a woman in need. He, was, he had heightened sensitivities about him. And Macintosh says that for the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know in, in Hebrews it talks about he faced temptation yet without sin. And Macintosh says that for the Lord Jesus Christ, temptation could have been an exquisite torture that we are totally unaware of. Because we're all damaged and blunted through sin. But in his case he was perfect and is able to resist temptation at the height of his sensitivity. Um, so he emptied himself, echinosin. He made himself nothing. And he took the nature of a servant. And he seemed to be quite often largely at the disposal of others. Although from time to time he would disappear and pray all night. And it would, it would take time to be alone, solitary with God the Father in prayer. But uh, to all intents and purposes, he was a servant. He was at the disposal actually of the will of God. I always do those things which please him. Remember the disciples, they go away to get food in the town of, in John chapter 4 and they come back and he talks to them about his nourishment. He said, my nourishment is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He was totally at God's disposal. And yet he appeared to them as a, a peasant teacher of Galilee, the humble son of God. And being made in human likeness, it wasn't permanent. It was just throughout his earthly life for about 33 years. And being found in appearance, the, the Greek word schema, you know how we talk about scheme, the Greek word schema, in the scheme of things as a man, in his daily life, meeting people, dealing with problems, training the disciples. Being in the scheme of things as a man, he says, he humbled himself. And humility is a duty not a grace. Did you know that? It's not something God does. You, know, you, you, know, you pray to be humble. I want to be humble. God make me humble. Humility is not in the gifts of this, the gift, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. You won't find humility. Humility is a duty. And in the case of the Lord Jesus, he regarded it as his duty on earth to humble himself. Not only before God, but also before human beings, he was stripped naked, he was punished, he was whipped, he was nailed, he was put on a cross. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. For him death was a voluntary act. In Romans 6.23 Paul says the wages of sin is death. For us death is uh, automatic Unless God translates us like Enoch and Moses, <laughs> um, or Christ comes back and we go to be with him at his second coming. But normally speaking, death is part of the wages of sin. 
But in the Lord Jesus' case, he never sinned. Why should you convince me of sin? He said nobody could say anything. He never sinned. So he never deserved to die. So therefore it enhances his sacrifice all the greater that he humbled himself and became obedient to death. And then the bottom line, even death on a cross, oh, that was really the, the uttermost depth of his sacrifice. Because the cross, it was absolutely deplorable both to Jews and Gentiles. Um, so it was a stumbling block to Jews how can, how can you possibly follow a leader who died on a cross like a felon and to the Jews how could you, how could you possibly follow somebody who was under the curse of God because they, this, in Deuteronomy I think it's chapter 23 or 24 it says cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree and he took on not only our sin but also the curse that we were under when he died on the cross and so for him, he became obedient unto death, even, even death on a cross. It came home to me, I remember I was 17, and uh, I was working in the steelworks. Well, I was also in the, I was in the research department in Motherwell, in the general metallurgy section. I was training to be a metallurgist. And they brought in a, well, they had a box of nails they found in a Roman camp in Struthel near Perth. And the wood was rotten. The, the top layer was rusted right over when they lifted it. The nails underneath looked as fresh as when the Romans were in Scotland. And we had to count the nails. And then we had to measure the nails and grade the nails. And then we had to do chemical analysis of the nails, hardness testing of the nails. <laughs> we did a battery of tests on the nails. And they weren't like our nails in various ways. Our nails have a round head and a round section. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, their nails were square section with a square head, and some of them were that length. And one of the regrets is I hadn't the cheek to ask for one. But when I saw the nails, I thought, these are just like the nails that went into my blessed Lord on the cross. I would love to have kept one. When I saw the nails, I thought of the Lord going all the way to the cross for us. And you could divide it into steps, you know. Who being originally the form of God, didn't count equality with God, something, but he emptied himself, became obedient unto death, and therefore you know, he was in the form of a servant, and he, he, he humbled himself, became obedient to death. These are all the downward steps. And then you've got uh, the second half of the hymn. Uh, God exalted him to the highest place. God gave him the name that is above every name, possibly Lord, L-O-R-D, um, although in the, I am saying the Lord Jesus is assuming the role of uh, the Old Testament, I am Yahweh, which is God's covenant name, occurs over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. But here, it's, uh, uh, some scholars think God is bestowing that name on him in a special sense in that his normal human name is expanded to be officially Lord and he's given him the title Lord that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father now if we don't meet him as our saviour we're going to meet him as our judge that's New Testament teaching but it's not simply that ungodly people who don't love Christ uh, are going to uh, acknowledge that he is Lord they're going to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father I think I better stop tonight but I think probably that's as good a place as any to stop I was going to finish chapter 2 by tonight but um, we'll go on later because I thought if I dealt with some introductory problems it would give you a helpful context in which to place our study